The 630 Chad Afternoon News with Jaylen Nye. Weekdays at 2 on 630 Chad. Well, police have charged two people in an ongoing graf- graffiti spree that police say has caused as much as a million dollars in damage. Now, a lot of the incidents are being reported in Old Strathcona and targeting some historic buildings, including the Princess Theatre, Block 1912, and the Farmer's Market. Kellen Ross and Liam Mulvald have now been charged with five counts of mischief, over $5,000, and police believe more people are involved. Now, you know what, Chetville, I've always wondered about graffiti when I've seen it roll by me on the trains or when I've walked by it on the street, pretty much anywhere in the world that I've traveled. So to find out more, well, I asked my producer, I said, I want to talk about graffiti. I want to find out about the history of it. And joining me this afternoon is David Chino Villarente, who is considered to be one of the foremost practitioners and, and ambassadors of graffiti culture in the world. He has co-authored many books on graffiti culture and collaborated with many brands, including Nike, Red Bull, and Reebok. He joins us this afternoon from Brooklyn, New York. David, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having me. All right. So take us back in time a little bit, David. What was it for you that um, got you interested in graffiti? Um, like many New York uh, youths growing in, up in New York City before me, there was a, a culture of graffiti in the city that dates back to the late 60s, the early 70s. Some of it was probably uh, the upheaval of gang territory markings and guys just um, claiming territory. And it started to birth or uh, evolve into something that was a little bit more creative. It was a conversation. Um, graffiti is indeed a language. In um, inner city, kids were communicating with each other. Yeah. And um, it was sort of a way to express themselves and sort of just let people know that they existed and they were here. So can you explain it? Can you expand on that a, a little bit more about the communication among each other? How was that done? Was it done with with the words that they were um, that they were um, uh, spray painting with the, with the images? How, how were they communicating? Um, initially, it started out with tags. It might have been Julio 104 or Papo uh, 194 or Tacky 183, but they were uh, typically writing their nicknames or names, um, and they would typically assign the street number to where they lived or a number that was specific or important to them. So uh, in uh, the summer of 1974, the New York Times wrote a story about a messenger um, whose name was Demetrius. He was from Washington Heights, and he went by the name Taki 183. Hmm. 183 was the numbered street that he lived on. And um, it's widely believed that that was the largest migration of young inner-city folks to graffiti culture. People were fascinated with that a kid just like themselves was the subject of this newspaper article. And it kind of made him a star in the city, and they were... uh, Tons of kids that grew up in the city that wanted to be just like him. And uh, graffiti continued to evolve. It made its way uh, on schoolyard handball courts and in stairwells and on buses and found a home on the subways in New York. Um, and it was sort of this nonverbal tacit, like a nonverbal form of communication where artists were able to express themselves. And um, the trains in New York go through four boroughs. So mm-hmm. a guy could potentially paint the train in the Bronx and his work would be seen in Manhattan, throughout Brooklyn, and end up in Far Rockaway, Queens. And, and so it was a great way to sort of announce that you were here and share your work with uh, 
tens of millions of people on a weekly, monthly, daily basis. And isn't that where you started? Uh, your um, your work was on the trains. That was that was uh, your go to spot. Yes, there was a culture of uh, kids painting on subways in New York. It's a lot like tattooing in the sense that um, you sort of start at the bottom and there was a mentor-apprentice relationship and there was typically an older, more established artist that sort of taught you the ropes and you figured out how not to step on the third rail and you figured out what the train schedules were. <laughs> and I know that this sounds um, really dangerous and highly illegal and mm-hmm. having this conversation in 2019, but in the early 80s, um, you know, New York was about as dysfunctional as it could possibly be. This was just one of the many pre-existing quality of life um, issues that New Yorkers were faced with. And, you know, to be quite honest, it's a, a creative renaissance of children that are sort of competing to see, for, competing for cool points to see who can manipulate the alphabet a little bit more cleverly than the next guy. Yeah. But um, it, it was the characters that I recognized from popular culture seeing uh, Mickey Mouse from Fantasia or the thing from the Fast Fantastic Four on the sides of the trains that really caught my eye as a child. How did it bring together a community or pull it apart at that time? Um, it, it was the great unifier. Okay. Um, you know, graffiti, unlike any other New York pastime before it, had this remarkable ability to bring kids in from all ethnic backgrounds and economic backgrounds and religious backgrounds and to some degree new york was still very segregated while i was going up Mm. um there were ethnic pockets throughout the city and there were certain communities where you might not have felt comfortable in and it was really hard to make friends outside of your own community maybe in the early 80s late 70s but graffiti really did have this magic ability to just bring kids together for the sake of uh, expression and um it was the most diverse new york pastime i have experienced um, growing up in the city. And you were fascinated by it. You were fascinated. Absolutely fascinated. You know, um, there's something about a train that's magic, and there are people at train spot around the world, and there are people that collect railroad sets. And, you know, the railroad set that I grew up um, in awe of had amazing art on the side. And, hmm. you know, all of these artists had these remarkable nicknames. And it was a very comic book-like sort of existence where by day he's Chris and at night he's Days and by mm-hmm. day he's John and by night he's Crash and he's Lenny by day and Futura at night and you know their superpowers the ability to paint amazing things on the sides of trains using these industrialized tools that were not you know manufactured for a creative purpose and their ability to step over a lot third rail and evade the law so you know it's almost like Christmas you know um, you, you never see Santa leaving the gift you wake up and it's there when you get there <laughs> and, and the art was just there when you got on the subway in the morning and it was absolutely breathtaking and um, it's a creative renaissance that's inspired I don't think there's a single nook or cranny of this globe that does not have a sophisticated graffiti movement at some point I was going to um, ask people are painting around the world I was going to ask you about that because I mean this isn't a, a New York thing it's not an Edmonton thing it's 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 a worldwide thing isn't it it's a worldwide phenomenon in 1983 uh, Tony Silver and Henry Chalfant um, shot a docu called uh, Style Wars mm-hmm. and it's the documentary it aired on PBS in most major cities around the world and if you were lucky enough to have a VHS or VCR back in 1983 you were able to record it 
but like me and most of my friends, we got a bootleg copy. But that um, it, it's the best documentation of an era. It encapsulates the, you know, uh, 83 through 84. And that film really inspired a generation. And then there was a book called Subway Art. And suddenly there was a blueprint. You know, um, historically, graffiti was a moving art. It would pull into the platform in front of you, and 40 seconds later it was pulling out in front of you. So it was hard to sometimes um, scrutinize or study what you were looking at, and the book Subway Art really gave the world the blueprint. Um, I think that uh, most American book companies were afraid to take a chance on publishing a book about graffiti. Yeah. So they went to a book fair in London, uh, and Thames and Hudson picked it up, and they were hoping that if they could just move 7,000 copies, they could break even. And I think they completely underestimated the moment. It is quite possibly the best-selling book on graffiti ever. It's gone into multiple prints since 1984, and uh, it is still in circulation today. Wow. But um, it's, for most people, considered the Bible of graffiti. And it's safe to say that the Internet, videos, and social media have made the international or the global graffiti community a more tightly knit community. David Chino Villarente joining me this afternoon. When did you start using Chino? It was a family nickname that I grew up with, and I experimented with a bunch of tags and then just settled with my family nickname. Okay. And I understand that there's probably a Chino in every Latino community around the world, but um, it stuck, and um, I guess I'm probably one of the more better-known chinos. Yeah. But it started out as a family nickname. So here's a, here's a question for you, David, because I know there's kind of different levels. As I was reading this, like taking a crash course in the last 24 hours about about graffiti, and, and you know, a lot of the stuff that we see here in, in Edmonton, um, honestly, it looks like crap. It looks like just a little, you know, white or black squiggly something on a stop sign somewhere, and I think they just call them tags, right? It's just tagging. Um, and that's, that's as... The what, most rudimentary form of it is, is the signal. The tag. That's the that. So that's so. For those who are listening right now, who are like, okay, what is that? What does that even mean? Why do they do that? Can you answer that? You know, um, having to speak from my experience, I think it's just like you know, when I was a kid, Keith Haring had drawings all over the city, mm. and and when I found out that one man created those drawings, I was absolutely fascinated. The notion that this man was everywhere I arrived before I went there was absolutely fascinating to me. And I believe that, you know, maybe if you climb Mount Everest, you're going to find someone's flag there. You know, and I think since the dawn of time, people have had some sort of uh, similar creative interest to maybe leave their mark in a public space. I've read things that date back as far as the ancient cities of Pompeii and people mm -hmm. strolling in public spaces and soldiers writing on bombs before they ship them off and yep. people just having the need to leave their name on something and it's sort of your brand your identity your name and you're communicating with the other artists letting them know that you were here and i know it's not the most attractive form of graffiti but it's sort of the entry level you know okay. today's vandal is tomorrow's fine artists mm. you know we have a show going on in new york city right now called beyond the streets and it's a celebration of people. Um, we have 100-plus um, world-renowned graffiti and street artists. But, you know, the one thing they have, in, or some of the things they have in common, is that they've all embodied the same rebellious sense of self-promotion. <laughs> and, and, and they were all, at some point, probably doing this illegally. And the beauty is that they've evolved and they've managed to take their craft above and beyond the streets, which is the theme of the show and the name of the show. You know what, David, but, I, um, I, I don't even have to, I, go ahead, go ahead. 
but this, but this is how it starts for many. And okay. it's probably not the most attractive, but the more sophisticated and more dedicated artists will continue to grow their craft and create more sophisticated pieces of art and artwork that start to resonate and are, are better appreciated. Mm -hmm. This is sort of the entry level, is that, you know, an active artist is going to leave signatures and, and uh, quickly drawn bubble letters, or, or as we call them, throw-ups or fill-ins, places. They're sort of hastily filled in bubbled letters. But that's the evolution is the signature to the bubble letter and then you start learning how to do more complicated letter forms and start incorporating characters and creating productions and ideally maybe at some point evolving and creating fine art or doing murals or animation and you know um the guys that come from graffiti run major animation departments that's around right. the world that are world-renowned tattoo artists and we've got this We've got a community of fine artists that sustain themselves comfortably I, I think, doing art. Yeah, I, I think here at home, you know, David. Um, I mean, we see some of you know the, the you know the bubble letters, and we see some other you know, some of more of the um, um, art art. Uh, art type like the you know more drawings and stuff like that on the trains and that sort of stuff it's the small tagging that really starts to tick people off when it doesn't look like anything it just looks like someone has spray painted a wall can you understand um and could um you know 20 years ago could people living in in uh, your community understand what it was or did it tick them off as well because sometimes here it really ticks people off when they see that I, I completely get it, and I grew up in a city, so the environment that I'm in is a lot more urban than some of the places, and, you know, it, it looks completely out of, you know, admittedly, it looks absolutely out of place for me when I travel to suburban communities and I see graffiti mm -hmm. in res residential areas, because I grew up in an urban community, and it was part of the landscape. It mm. was here before I started writing graffiti, and, you know, it's still here long after I stopped, but it's always been a part of the landscape. It's not as a... It's not as bombs or graffiti riddled as it was in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. The city is, New York City is probably at the cleanest I've ever seen it, <laughs> but I understand the frustration, and it is a language, and when you don't understand the language, you don't always appreciate what you're looking at, but there is legitimately a fine art behind tagging and creating bubbles, and, um, and kids are just sort of trying to express themselves and establish themselves, and this is the sort of the entry level for most artists, tagging and doing bubbles. Maybe you get caught and you're forced to focus more on the creative stuff. Or, or typically there's a milestone in your life, whether it's a graduation, a marriage, a new job, career, or child, that sort of changes the focus of your art and people start to evolve as artists when they can't take the same calculated risks. But it's typically something that happens with the younger demographic of kids. It's a younger generation that's usually active. You, it's, there are not many people that are still 40 or 50 that are still They're doing students. it at the same level that they were doing it in their early 20s or late teens. Before I let you go, when you first, you know, yeah, did your first uh, tag or your first bubble, your first, you know, your letters, did you ever think that how many years later you'd be doing what you're doing now? I mean, the number of books that you have put out, the collaborations that you're doing, the, uh, the, the art shows, everything. Did you think that this is where it would lead you? I had no idea, and to be quite honest, I didn't have any intentions on turning the corner as an adult and holding on to something I was so passionate about as a child, but I was able to watch the culture mature, 
Um, it's in major museums around the world and in publications and, you know, your favorite art directors. It's seeping into homes whether or not we realize that there are creative directors in almost every major record label mm -hmm. and apparel company out there that are sort of putting their creative sensibilities into something that our kids wear or we own or branding. But I had no idea that it would come to this. And it's an exciting time for the culture, watching it all grow up. So, you know, I'm, I'm about 30 plus years removed <laughs> from being an active vandal. But I, there's still something about the culture that, you know, the direction, the seed was planted in Philadelphia, the tree grew up in New York. And the branches are continuing to spread throughout the world, and I'm really fascinated where the culture's going. David, I'm I'm fascinated by this conversation. I want to thank you for joining us this afternoon, and I'm going to follow you on Twitter and on Insta. And uh, thank you for taking the time to shed some light on this today. I really appreciate it. I uh, appreciate you guys having me. Thank you so much. Take care now. David Chino Villarente. He is one of the foremost practitioners and ambassadors of graffiti culture in the world. Um, he has written numerous books on graffiti culture. He has um, even got kids drawing books out there. He has collaborated with all sorts of brands, uh, Foot Locker, VH1, Reebok, you name it. He is uh, curating art shows. Um, yeah, I'm going to spend some time reading a little bit more. Still to come on the 6.30 Chad Afternoon News, another pair of wristbands to head off to that Chaos uh, Rock Music Festival. I can let you know that uh, Rob Zombie has cancelled, but uh, The Cult uh, is uh, replacing uh, Rob Zombie on, on, that, uh, on that show. Not sure what day that is, but the ticket's coming up. Uh, coming up what was it, next weekend, the 26th, 27th uh, weekend. So uh, stay tuned for that. We'll take a break here for the 3.30 News. Producer Brad joins me in studio after that.